Hello, everybody. Alongside Don Helbig, I'm Ryan Sir, and welcome to The Pick 6, the podcast by The Attractions Group, where we bring you the latest stories from the attractions and amusement industry. Thank you, Ryan. Before we dive into this week's Pick 6, let me remind our listeners where they can tune in to The Attractions Group podcast. Catch us on your favorite podcast platforms, and be sure to subscribe, like, and share with your fellow attraction enthusiasts. Absolutely, Don. Now, let's jump right into the news. What's story number one? Danny Elfman, known for collaborating with Tim Burton, is set to compose the soundtrack for the rumored Universal Classic Monsters Land in Epic Universe. Now, Ryan, you get a name like Danny Elfman involved, that's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, just to clarify, to save uh, some people the Google, uh, Danny Elfman um, often works with... um, I can't think of his name. The, who's the guy that did Edward Scissorhands and Batman and. Uh... Are you thinking Tim, Tim Burton? Burton? Yeah. I don't know why that guy's name. I was thinking him with his like hair and stuff, but I, I mentioned them at the top. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, but uh, yeah, so he, he did the, uh, often collaborates with Tim Burton. So if you've seen a Tim Burton movie, then Danny Elfman likely did the music. His style is very unique. Uh, it has a very quirky gothic. Imagine Tim Burton style, but with music. And that's that's what you're getting here. Um, but it, I'm super excited about it because their collaboration is usually pretty spot on perfect. Now, the movies themselves, obviously, like were probably better in the 90s than they are now. But with that being said, the collaboration is, is perfect and the music is just wonderful. So I'm super excited about that. What are your thoughts, Don? Well, I think it's a great fit. Uh, for the Monsters Land. I I think, you know, you probably can't find anyone better than him to do that. And of all the different areas that's going to go into Epic Universe, that's the one I'm most excited about. Yeah, me too. I think that'll be a a fantastic area. There's, there's a lot of stuff about Epic Universe that are, that's rumored and it's very strongly rumored, but it hasn't quite been announced yet. So I think that that park is going to be a home run and a half. And the most interesting thing is to see how Disney reacts. Let's be honest here, because we know Universal is going to be successful with it. Yes, that's always fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next. Okay, so um, Cedar Fair. They announced a strategic reorganization promoting Bob White to chief commercial officer and elevating Christian Dickerman to chief strategy officer. Kelly Ford will be transitioned out of the executive vice president and chief marketing officer position. Mergers, mergers, mergers. Right, Don? Yeah, you know, the thing with this, I found a little odd that it happens just before Christmas, uh, you know, with, with the promotions and uh, with, with Kelly Ford transitioning out of the, the marketing chief uh, marketing officer position. I found that a little bit odd. Um, you know, there's still a lot... Uh, lot ahead that they have to work through before the merger would be complete um so to me it was just more the timing i mean you knew there was going to be changes there's going to be a lot of changes once the merger would go through Uh, but just for me it was just a little odd with the timing what about you yeah i I thought it was strange too especially because they're they're saying that the merger will go through like Q2 or Q3 of next year why reorganize now unless this was the plan all along that's also a possibility i mean but what do you let me ask you this what do you think this means for 
marketing people in the parks like because i know that like I, we've seen a merger before when cedar fair purchased paramount parks and it seems like you know nowadays it's it's a mixture of the both people but at first especially cedar fair brought in a lot of their own people uh do you think that it'll be like that yeah that was uh you know a purchase and acquisition this is a merger a little bit different there with that um it i First of all, you know, whenever someone like Kelly Ford leaves and they bring someone else in in that role, um, even if there wasn't a merger, there was going to be changes because different marketing people want their own people and they have their own way of how they want it to be structured. And that Kelly certainly came in and restructured how Cedar Fair was doing marketing. You know, she took marketing teams out of the park, uh, moved them all to Charlotte. Uh, where they became brand teams and doing all the marketing from there. Uh, the only, you know, foot on the ground that you had at the park level where, where you know, PR digital and you had a, a, somebody that was, you know, part of the uh, activation, you know, with, with strategic alliance, working with them and that on some activation type things. So marketing was no longer done at the park level. You know, that was Kelly's plan when she came in to eventually get to that point, uh, you know, three years ago, they did. So somebody else comes in uh, to that role or when the merger take place you know it, it's always an uncomfortable time for for everybody on in both chains because you don't know what's going to happen until it happens so um it, it just you know it just goes back to me though i, I keep thinking why now mid-december you know do you do this before the merge even takes place yeah i mean same here it, it's it's really odd timing um I, yeah so i just think you know if, if you're you know, with either either chain and you're in a marketing position, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think you'd want to keep that resume updated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the funny part is, is to the lay person, they would say, because you mentioned she took a lot of the marketing out of the parks and put it on like corporate level and stuff. And um, I, I, I said from the beginning when I heard about this that like I, I didn't think it was sustainable and um, – but the thing though is from the for the layperson's perspective, you would think like they did that, it didn't work, and she's paying the price. But I think that's the direction they're gonna go anyway, because that's it's more inexpensive to have a small team of people handling five or ten parks than having four or five people at each park. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it's it's the especially with the technology and things today, you know, you can certainly do it in one location, a corporate office somewhere and do a lot of these positions and you can eliminate a lot of positions, uh, which is something that they're going to have to work toward anyway to, to reduce the expenses. You know, we saw that in the uh, merger announcement that, you know, some of the objectives that they had and how they were going to reduce some of those costs. So there's going to be the elimination of, of some of these jobs that are duplications and stuff. So, uh, but, you know, I, I thought, uh, you know, the things she brought to the, the marketing team, I mean, she certainly brought it to the, um, you know, the world we live in today. You know, where when I first joined Cedar Fair in 2007, um, a lot of it was still the old school way. So I, I think she brought a lot to the table. And, uh, you know, I want to be one of those people that want to wish Kelly Ford, you know, the best and, you know, whatever she ends up wanting to do from this point on, because, uh, you know, very talented and, and had some great ideas. Yeah, absolutely. So best wishes to Kelly Ford. All right, Don, what is next? The Iron Menace roller coaster at Dorney Park, the first dive coaster in the region, is set to open in 2024, featuring a 95-degree drop 
and unique elements like a tilted loop and zero gravity roll. Uh, there's been a lot of photos uh, recently by the park being posted on uh, their social channels that uh, show the attraction taking shape. And if you're a fan of, of uh, you know, Dorney Park, you live in that, you know, Allentown area where the park is located and that's your home park, you got to be super excited about this. I think the elements of this ride are going to make it uh, perhaps the best dive coaster out there. I, th I think it's going to be one of those rides that's special. And I think, you know, uh, the, the Dorney team has done a great job with the marketing and promotion of it. They're, they're sharing with the guests you know, all the progress of this coaster. And I think it was like 19 years since they even had a new roller coaster. Uh, so it, it's great to see that uh, there's just so much excitement and Dorney Park is is finally getting a lot of attention, uh, you know, from the coaster enthusiast and especially for those long suffering fans of Dorney Park that hadn't seen anything, you know, new like this in 19 years. Yeah, it, it would be kind of tough to, um, to be, to be like have your home park not get a coaster in so long and and not only not get a coaster but it, it's a uh, not a hugely invested in park so uh, a lot of us are fortunate to be in the market of parks that get attention every single year in some way shape or form whether you know it or not you know but um yeah but but the team there has taken the ball and they've run with it in terms of how they're marketing and promoting it i think they're doing a lot of great things they're generating a lot of excitement uh just love seeing the photos and the videos that they're doing and uh, you know it's, it's one of those rides that uh you know just looking at everything they're doing if you're a coaster enthusiast you got to make plans to get to dorney park because i think of all the dive coasters out there as i mentioned this one has a chance to be the best of all of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, not just the the ride itself, but you know, as we talked about many times, the experience as a whole is very important. And it seems like their theme and their look and feel is going to be pretty special with this one as well. What's next? All right. So, what is next? Um, so, uh, Silver Dollar City, an old time Christmas named America's best theme park holiday event by USA Today's Ten Best. With a record sixth win, the festival with over 6.5 million lights, Broadway-style shows, and festive treats runs through December 30th. Uh, so I haven't been to that one. I've certainly been to Dollywoods. <laughs> imagine this one being better than Dollywoods. That's hard to imagine, uh, but it is you know, very well done. I've seen a lot of uh, photos of it shared on social media. I've seen their own social media accounts. Uh, it's very impressive looking. And the guests that I've spoken to who have experienced this event, uh, from what they say, I mean, it, it earns its spot there in the top. I mean, there's a reason it's won six times. Ab yeah, absolutely. Don, what's next? Tokyo Disneyland's current Space Mountain will close permanently on July 31st, 2024, concluding with a celebration called Celebrating Space Mountain, the final ignition. The new Space Mountain is set to open in 2027. Yeah. Um, so the thing, though, is most of the time this would be really, really good news. Uh, but the Disney stuff is kind of sacred. And even to replace... Uh, a dated attraction with a new modern attraction, that's going to be a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Don't you think? I do. I do think that uh, will be the case now. You know, Gambian in Tokyo, there's not a lot of awareness uh, about the attractions that you have at Disneyland there. 
as you would if it were in California or Orlando. So it kind of flies under the radar a little bit, but uh, obviously it's going to have its fans, you know, that live in Tokyo and have uh, experienced this attraction since it first opened. So it's always sad when you see something close. Yeah, I completely agree. And, uh, and I mean, you, you make a good point there. Uh, I mean, culturally, we're not really that educated on it, but uh, it might not have the significance that Space Mountain does here or, um, you know, maybe even at like, you know, other parts of the world that have a, a Disney park. Cool. Next up. All right. So exciting news out of Cedar Point. Testing has begun on Top Thrill 2 featuring Zamperla lightning trains with backward launches and speeds up to 120 miles per hour. Stay tuned for updates as testing progresses over the coming weeks. That is my most anticipated coaster of next year. I am so excited about it. How about you? Yeah, very excited about it. I think it's great to see trains in motion, you know, doing a lot of testing there. Now, as far as I know, as of this recording, it has not launched over the top hat yet. It has gone up the hill and then back, you know, doing that kind of thing. You're seeing that kind of footage out there, those photos. Uh, but it's good to see trains moving and, you know, getting ahead of it. And they'll be able to work out any, you know, kinks and that. It'll give them a few months to, to really work on that before, the, before they go uh, full bore uh, with the testing. But it's encouraging to see that it looks like it really will be ready to go when the park opens in May. Yeah, that's my biggest thing. Um, you know, granted, they didn't have to build the whole structure, but I, engineering based off of somebody else's work is probably a challenge in itself. I mean, ask any RMCR engineer. Um, but uh, that's the coolest thing is they were able to, in their construction period, get it to the point where, I guess, theoretically, I mean, we don't know what we don't know, but it theoretically could operate. I, I think that they're it's not up to power, and it's mainly like a weather thing and so on, but... Uh, I know that the, the park had stated that they were going to be testing it before the end of the year, but it probably wouldn't be a full circuit. But, you know, the footage that's out there looks very promising. And um, I, I just really hope this goes very well for both Cedar Point and Zamperla and for me because yeah, I love yeah. it. <laughs> now, the train that they have on it is parts of each of the trains because there's different colors. So there's like a car from each each one because that's all they have there right now. So if you see up close pictures of it, it's, you know, you're going to see like a silver one, a blue one, a black one. Um, the, the trains are all going to be solid color when they all, when the cars all come in. But, you know, it started out where they were just testing, you know, taking it from the transfer track, you know, moving it over and then doing more of those kind of things. And then getting to where you kind of, you know, launch it up a little bit and then it rolls, you know, does the rollback and goes up. Uh, the new spike and then kind of goes back and forth, you know, like that. That's what you've been seeing. But just very exciting to see a train in motion this early when it's going to be a new attraction. And I can tell you, for all those out there that keep track of your credits, this will be considered a new credit. I completely it's a, agree. It's a new experience. So um, you can argue till the cows come home, but it will be a new credit. Yep. Top Thrill 2 alongside Top Thrill, the original Top Thrill Dragster, just like both racers at Kings Island are two credits. Don't get me started there, Ryan. <laughs> that. You're, you know, just, just don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know what, you know, what's really intriguing to me. And, and, and again, this is speaking from a layperson standpoint. I, I don't know what I don't know, but I was impressed by the fact that they put in the last piece of track just a couple weeks ago and they were ready to launch trains. 
because this has to be one of the most technically insane rides ever with however many LSM fins that they were replacing, you know, the hydraulic launch and then the brake mechanism. And, you know, they got these new trains that are not too far out of concept only at this point. So I, you know, congrats to everybody involved. Really, really cool. It is. So that wraps up the latest industry news. So moving on to this week's listener questions. The first will come from Donnie Lakes. He asks, do you prefer boat, Omnimover, or trackless dark rides? Ryan, what are your thoughts? Oh, that's an easy one. Trackless. I think the trackless stuff is just fascinating. And um, one thing that always bothered me about the fully immersive experiences is... Uh, especially like things like Hagrid's at universal where it's like, Oh, I feel like I'm on a motorcycle or whatever. You can still see the track below you. So like that takes me out of it a little bit. So granted like the, the trackless dark rides that are out there and I'm speaking to rise of the resistance, Mickey and Minnie's runaway railway and the Ratatouille, which is my favorite word to say. Um, I think that the fact that you can't necessarily tell where you're going to go next is such a huge thing for, uh, you know, for that ride experience. I, I think that that's just, that's the best dark ride innovation of the past 30 years. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you and go trackless. Uh, I think that's the, you know, after you experience that, I mean, it's hard to go back and, you know, favor the Omni movers or the boat rides. I do love a good boat ride, you know, as a dark ride, uh, you know, who doesn't, but uh, the trackless dark rides to me, if I had to pick one of the three, that's what I'm going with. Yeah. Now I, you, you give me a dark ride and I'll like it, but um, I would say probably it would go trackless, then boat, then Omni mover. But that's not to dump on Omni mover because I love those rides too. I just, if I had to rank them, that's the way I would rank them. Yeah, I think we've got the same order. Uh, yeah. We have one other question there. What's that, Ryan? We do. So we got another question. That's from Adventures with Parker. Uh, and he's asking, he or she, sorry, is uh, they're asking, how do parks decide what new attractions they add? And how might that process differ between larger corporate parks and smaller independent parks? Great question. Great question. Don, I'll let you take this first. Well, I think it's going to depend on, you know, what the the makeup is of, of the guests that the, the park attracts, you know, every year to your park. You know, you look at a place like Holiday World, you know, mostly family. So you're going to look to do the family type attractions. Uh, Good Gravy, perfect example of that. So that's what you're going to lean uh, toward there. You're not necessarily going to think that you need a, uh, you know, a 300 foot tall gig or anything like that there because that's not their that's not their audience that's not their typical crowd they do get the coaster enthusiasts but for the most part you look it's families dollywood it's families big bear mountain perfect attraction for that park uh you look at the other rides that are in their kids area it's one awards for a reason because they're putting in the attractions that fit uh the audience that's that's coming there that's coming through the turnstiles uh, you know cedar point it's a, a destination for thrill seekers. So you're going to have, you know, you're going to look to do attractions like Millennium Force, Gatekeeper. You know, you're going to reimagine uh, Top Thrill Dragster, make it Top Thrill 2. You're going to do things like that. So those are the kind of things that you look at is, is who's who's your guest. You know, that's the, that's the most important thing. And then you just kind of look at, uh, you know, over the years, what areas need to be addressed. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, if you have a park like Kings Island, it's a mixture. 
families, thrill seekers, you kind of cater to all of them. So some years you're going to focus on water park, then you're going to look at the kids area, then you're going to look to add a roller coaster. Then another year it might be more of the enhancements with restaurants and um, special events. So it really just depends on, you know, who and what you are as a park to what your game plan is going to be when it comes to adding new attractions. Yeah. And, and to, to add to, uh, to what you were saying with it, um, and, and this kind of answers the second part of the question as well, but um, a lot of it comes down to ROI, the return on investment. So for, let's say something like Disney, um, Disney can put in Galaxy's Edge, which was what, $1 billion, $5 billion, somewhere in that ballpark. Did they make a billion dollars off of it? Uh, yeah, after five years or so. Because they can afford to do that. But when you got something like your Knobles and whatever. Yeah, you can't afford. Yeah, right. You don't have the deep of pockets to do that. You don't have the financial backing to do that. Right. So that plays a role as well, too. But, you know, again, you have to first and foremost, whoever the decision makers are, you have to know who's your audience, who's coming to your park. You have to have a thorough understanding of that or you're going to miss the mark no matter what you do then. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, but but you know, and I think that both of what we're both of the things we're saying are both like very close components. I think they're both pieces, Correct. huge pieces of the pie. Um, but this is more like you know smaller park versus corporate park. Um, and 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 a good example. And this is definitely me speculating. I don't I don't know for sure, but um, you know, so uh, Holiday World added Thunderbird. What year was that, Don? Am I going to have to look that up? Uh, yeah, I think it was like, what, 20, 2015, 2016 range? Yeah, let me let me look that up for sure. But um, so they added Hol uh, Thunderbird. So they're a privately owned park um, that's owned by one family and, and it has been for a while. So they that opened in 2015. So they haven't had another really big investment uh, for quite a while. And this year, the 2024 is not a big investment too. I mean, it's bigger than normal, but they said on their podcast, it was like $5 million or less. Uh, so here it is eight years later. So Thunderbird is a 20, 22 million, I think dollar coaster or so. Uh, so they've got to amortize that over that amount of time. Yeah. 22 million, according to RCDB. Um, but they've got to, they've got to amortize that over a certain amount of time before they consider themselves making money. Uh, and I think that was a big contribution to why it took so long for them to uh, go for the next coaster. Like, you're right. If they put in a giga coaster, it would take forever to make their money back because that's just not the park that they are. But also, you know, $22 million and they have to figure what, where did this move the needle? And how many years did it move the needle before we've made more than $22 million? Like, how much can we attribute to that? Um, I think that it took them longer than they thought. And that's why it's been so long before they had like a notable investment. Um Again, well, yeah, you had, you know, you had COVID in there in, you know, 2020, which when you are, you know, family owned or you, you don't have, you know, you're not a, uh, you know, like a Disney where you have, you know, just deeper pockets in that you had to, you know, take a couple steps back, you know, some of the smaller parks, they had to do that after COVID. Right. And, and I, and I, I completely agree that that was a factor. Um, but at the same time, like the coaster enthusiast community is freaking relentless. If, if holiday world, were going to add a coaster in 2020 or 2021 with the original plans, they would have known about it. Let's be honest, not necessarily all the details or whatever, but I think they would have figured it out. Um, but, uh, but with that being said, uh, it was a long time. And I think that 
the incremental revenue, the incremental margin that they get out of it uh, is really going to uh, what determine how often they get these large investments. Um, and part of that also is that the the sine wave there is kind of pushed closer together when the pockets bigger. Let's take Disney and Universal out of the mix because they can afford to amortize over 20 years if they want to. But were you talking about your Six Flags and your Cedar Fairs and even like some SeaWorld parks and stuff? Um, they need to make their money back in five years or so. And what they think they can get out of the incremental revenue is going to be what they determine that budget is. Um, so and five years is a pretty good turnaround for that, at least in my mind. I'm not an accountant, but uh, for something like Good Gravy, uh, could they make an extra million dollars a year out of, out of it over five years? Yeah, heck yeah, they could. You know, but Thunderbird, $22 million. We're talking about over five and a half, you know, a little over $5 million per year. Could they make that? That's a little tougher to justify. Uh, but that's part of the, it's not just the budgets and they don't have the money or whatever, because anything's possible. But um, that's part of the reason why the smaller the park, the smaller the investment in a lot of cases. Did I sufficiently cover that, Don? <laughs> you did. Yes, you did. Okay. So long as it didn't sound like it was totally made up on the spot. No, no. <laughs> and we, you know, we appreciate the, uh, the questions. And if you have questions, Submit them on our X attractions underscore GRP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, make sure that you follow us on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple, Google, Spotify. Uh, we do a video version on YouTube. So search for the attractions group podcast on YouTube. Make sure you smash that subscribe button, hit like, and drop us a comment. And Hey, this is another week down. We'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks, Don. <laughs>